0: Father, we want to thank you so much. It's always such an honor, such a joy to take your word and to communicate your word in a way that brings freedom and liberty to souls. That is the joy of my heart to see people healed and whole and walking in the fullness and the blessing. And it starts on the inside of us, not the outside. It's an inside job. It works in the mind. It works in our soulish realm our heart, our emotions. And I thank you, Father, that the gospel of your dear son, the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. And those who are willing to hear, you give them eyes to see and ears to hear the absolute truth of the gospel, and that it is a finished work, and that we can add nothing to Jesus' precious sacrifice. And so thank you, Father. That doesn't mean we take life off, eat, drink, and be merry. There are things for us to do because people have not heard this gospel. I thank you, Father, that you are so easily moved and you are making ways. We sang that song this morning, Waymaker. You are making ways, making inroads into those places, not just distant shores, but uh, the distant shores of our hearts as well. And so thank you, Father, for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to continue in the series that I began several weeks ago. It's a series I'm calling, Show Us the Father. I'm growing so partial to the series. Today, I'm going to minister for a little while through a message I'm calling, The Garden of the Father's Heart. What I've desired for us to see throughout this series are the intrinsic beauties and glories and qualities and virtues and the moral excellences. These are the beautiful virtues that grow and flow from daddy's heart. I'm talking about beauty and excellence that show up in the form of extravagant gifts that the father has given us such as the gift of oneness. And that's where this series began through a message I called The Virtue of Oneness. And as I was thinking about that last night, I thought, what a precious, precious gift to give someone. The gift of oneness. Friends, we are not just in Christ. And Christ is not just in us. It is so much larger, so much more paramount than that. We are one with God. Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17, the scriptures say, and he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit. I want to draw your eyes to those two words, one spirit. Ask yourself deep inside this morning, are you joined to the Lord through salvation? Of course you are. That means according to that scripture right there, he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit, not two spirits, One spirit, not separate spirits, one spirit. Friends, there's not spirit senior and spirit junior. We are one spirit. There's not one perfect spirit. And then we come along with our imperfect spirit, if you will. No, whatever we had, when we come to the Lord, we are upgraded immediately. Whatever's on Jesus is on us. Whatever's in Jesus is in us. Friends, you'll be happy to know that in Christ, there are no prenuptial agreements just in case things don't work out. It always works out. There are no divorces in Christ, zero divorces. Now, let me see if I can drive home this point about oneness. If a fly were to land in your soup, it would be a true statement to say that fly is in my soup, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be a true statement? And if that fly decided to go on a feeding frenzy while he was in my soup, it would also be a true statement to say, that soup is in the fly. But that doesn't make the fly one with the soup. Now, had you have added the fly when you made the soup, then that fly would be one with the soup. What's my point? My point is this. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, we were crucified with him. That means we were added to him. That means we became one with him. His crucifixion became our crucifixion. His burial became our burial. And his resurrection life became our resurrection life. Do you see how simple that is? You see, the fly is not one with the soup. You can pick the fly out. And if you've got small enough instruments and the right person, you could dissect the soup out of the fly, couldn't you? We were crucified with Christ. And so we need to think larger than we're just in Christ. I love that. And I love the fact that Christ is in us. That's scriptural, Christ in us, the hope of glory. But something more paramount than that is that we are one with Christ. One with Christ. That means, again, the father can't see where Christ starts and where you end or where you start and he ends. No, we are one with him. We are one in Christ, and he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit. The scriptures tell us, for he hath made him, that means Christ, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The righteousness of God in him. Friends, we were made the righteousness of God in Christ. We are one with him. You see, that is the miracle, if you will, of the new birth. Not that we're just, again, in Christ or that Christ is in us. The miracle of the new birth is that we are one with Christ. We are not just in the garden of the Father's heart. We become one with the garden. His attributes, His qualities, everything that He has available is ours because we are one with Him. One with Him in the garden. One with Daddy's heart. We have become one with Christ. In fact, the scriptures even tell us that we are hidden with Christ in God. We are not just a fly that is landed in Daddy's soup bowl, friends. As the Father looks upon us, He sees the same intrinsic beauties and glories and qualities and virtues and moral excellences that he sees in his only beloved son, Jesus Christ. Amen? In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3, we find these words. So simple, very short verse, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That means we are one with Christ. Christ died, we died, we died at the same time. We were crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live how? By the faith of the Son of God. It's His faith, it's not my faith. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. In the garden of the Father's heart, we discover the beauty and excellence of faithful love. That was the second message in this series, a message I called The Virtue of Faithful Love. I'm talking about a love that is not predicated upon our love and faithfulness to God. That is religion, friend. And there's so many people that teach that your relationship is based upon your faithfulness, meaning mine, and your love toward God. No, friends, not at all. This Relationship has been established upon God's faithfulness and God's love for me. And so when I get that picture down, when I get that truth and that reality in my heart, and it becomes my reality, then, then my love begins to grow, not only upward but outward and inward. It begins to grow everywhere. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13, I love it from the amplified classic Bible. It says, if we are faithless, that means we do not believe and are untrue to him. Do you see those words? If we are faithless, he remains true. Why? Because it's faithful love. So if we are faithless, he remains true. That means he is faithful to his word and his righteous character. For he cannot deny himself. Whether we're faithful or not, God is faithful. I remember when Valerie and I first got married, I heard her heart said something, did something. I don't remember what it was. I got out of the habit of doing that, friends. And it made her cry. And I said, you know, I, I felt so bad about it. I came over, got on my knees in front of her and put my arms around her and said, I'm so sorry, honey, that I hurt your heart. This is what love relationship looks like. It's not about always asking God forgiveness. It's about going to him and just saying, Daddy, I'm I'm sorry. It's okay to do that. That's not who I am. I needed a deeper dose, a deeper revelation of your faithful love. And he's faithful to give that to you. So one of the things that we don't find in the garden of God's heart is condemnation. The scriptures tell us clearly that there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful scripture? It's found in Romans 8.1. I don't have the slide for it today, but It's beautiful. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation, none. That word no means not even one. You can't just go, well, there hasn't been any so far. No, not even one, no condemnation. So we never find condemnation growing or flowing from the heart of the Father. In the garden of the Father's heart, you know who we meet there? We meet the sweet Holy Spirit. The one who plants the well deep within our inner being and continuously refreshes us with living water. That was the third message in the series, a message that I called the virtue of the inner well. The one who the Father has given us. For what reason? Scriptures say to be our helper and our comforter. And he does that. He's our helper. So often we think that we're the Holy Spirit's helper. No, he's our helper. He's our comforter, the one who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Do you remember that scripture? I'm going to put the Holy Spirit on the inside of you. And he is the deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. So your good works, all the things you do throughout life. Wonderful. Awesome. Keep doing them. Beautiful. Keep blessing people. Do whatever you can. But that's not your deposit the Holy Spirit who's given to you as a gift. He is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Beautiful. And the scriptures say that he's the one who abides in us forever. Jesus said that. He said he will abide in you forever. We see that truth in John chapter 14 and verse 16. Jesus said, and I will pray the father or I will pray to the father. I love this. And he shall give you another comforter well what do you mean another one jesus is basically saying i was the first one he's going to give you another one because i've got to go back to be with my daddy but if i leave he's going to come but he's not coming until i leave he said i'm going to give you another comforter and look at these words friends lock these in the storehouse of your heart and it says that he may abide with you how long come on talk to me folks 10 years 20 years Forever! What does forever mean? Forever! Come on, I mean, you can't mistake what that word means. It means without end. John 14, 16, And I will pray to the Father, and He shall give you another comforter, that He may abide with you forever. In the garden of the Father's heart, we discover fields of grace and magnified mercy. In the book of Genesis, chapter 19, And verse 19, we find these words. Behold now, thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. That's where the inspiration for the fourth message in this series came from, the message I ministered last, which was called the virtue of magnified mercy. Would you like to know who said those words? Surely that must be the patriarch Abraham to say something like that. No, it wasn't Abraham. Well, it must have been Isaac. No, it wasn't Isaac. Must have been Jacob. No, it wasn't Jacob. We're in Genesis. Was it Joseph? No, Joseph hasn't come along yet. These words came from the tongue of Abraham's nephew, Lot. (laughs) Can you believe that? The man who lived in the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The man who offered his virgin daughters to a mob of vile, sex-thirsty men. The man who was so full of fear that he and his daughters lived in a cave for a time. The man who got drunk on wine and fathered the firstborn sons of his two daughters. You see, even in the midst of all these poor decisions, who would want to move into Sodom and Gomorrah? Lot did. Even in the midst of poor decisions and not fully trusting in God, Lot was considered righteous. You say, that's impossible, Mark. That is impossible. There is no way he could have been considered righteous. Let me ask you a question. If the apostle Peter was standing right here, right now, if we could just bring him in, if he just kind of came down through a bank chute and stood right there out of heaven, and the apostle Peter told you what I just told you, would you believe him? You better believe him, because he's the one who told us that Lot was righteous. We see this truth in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6-8. through 8. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, having made them an example unto us that should live ungodly, look what he says here, and delivered righteous Lot. Peter said this. Now don't you think Peter, who's being moved by the Holy Spirit to pen these words, would have known if that fit in his book or not? Of course he would have. It says, and delivered righteous lot, a man who was greatly distressed by the immoral conduct of lawless people. In other words, it bothered him to be around people that were so lawless and so ungodly and Sodom and Gomorrah had their share of people like that. He says, continuing, for as long as that righteous man lived among them, day after day, he was being tortured in his righteous soul by what he saw and heard in their lawless actions. You say, Pastor Mark, how could Lot be considered righteous? I don't get it. Because the garden of the Father's heart is faithful, even when we are faithless. Remember, he is always faithful. This is Abraham's nephew, that great patriarch that God cuts covenant with. No man is considered righteous through his performance or his obedience to the law. Please underscore those words this morning. No man, not a single one is considered righteous because of his own performance or even his own obedience to the law. That doesn't mean we perform poorly. That doesn't mean we disobey all the laws we can think of. No, it doesn't mean anything like that. But I'm telling you in terms of righteousness, no man today is considered righteous based on his performance or based on his obedience to the laws. He has made the righteousness of God by grace through faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? He's made righteous by grace through faith. Faith in what? Faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The Father loves grace. The Father loves mercy. And the Father loves gardens. The Garden of Eden is where it began for humanity. And I want you to imagine with me for a moment what that first garden must have looked like. Can you imagine? What did it smell like? I mean, go ahead. Take all the liberties you want. Use your creative juices. Use your imagination. What did that first garden look like? I mean, think about it. The greatest gardener of all time renovated a space that was once without form and void, a space where darkness was upon the face of the deep and that great gardener, our father came along and he made flowers grow where they could have never grown. He made trees grow where they could have never grown without the light and without the father's word and without him being that great gardener. I don't know if one day was a little day. I think it probably was, but whether it was one day or a thousand years, it doesn't matter. There came a point in time when God had finished Adam's home. It was done. Did you get any picture of what that could have possibly looked like? All the colors and beauty and fragrances. And finally, the home is complete. It's time to make man now and put him in this garden. And when man's home was complete, you know what he did? The father fashioned Adam, the first man, the jewel of his creation, out of the dust of the ground. The scriptures tell us that the father breathed into the nostrils of lifeless Adam, colorless Adam, breathless Adam, powerless Adam as he laid there, inanimate Adam, and Adam became a living soul. And Adam stood up and he instinctively knew this is my father. And he began to worship his father. Friends, it's the same thing that the father is doing today, breathing the Holy Spirit into people that we might become a righteous and living soul, one with him in spirit, one with him in the garden. And so God took Adam that first man and placed him in the paradise that he had created. We call it the Garden of Eden. This is the first mention of garden in the scripture. I don't know as though Adam understood fully how good he had it. I mean, how could he have? There was nothing for him to compare it to. Adam was created with a silver spoon in his mouth. There's no question about it. Did you know that there are 7.9 billion people on the planet and half of these people make less than $5.50 per day. But the truth is, until they compare themselves to someone else, they don't even know how bad they have it. Now, you and I couldn't do that, could we? We look at a country like Haiti or Nicaragua, where Valerie and I have been, or we think about Mozambique or a place like that, and we say, God, thank you that I don't live in such poverty, that I don't live in such lack, But I've come by today to remind us what Jesus said. He said that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses. And so all this material stuff we had, he said, this is not where you find life. I know so many people substitute Christ the hope of glory, and they go their own way, searching for their true meaning of life. And some get so involved in work and traveling and building things, homes and estates and whatever it may be, and they've overlooked Christ. Jesus also said, what would a man gain if he would win the whole world and in the process forfeit his soul, lose his soul? What have you gained when the casket lid comes closed and you've lost your soul? Friends, it is in the garden of the Father's heart that we find the true treasures of life. This is where they're at in his heart. Faithfulness, when we are unfaithful and faithless. Love that keeps no record of wrongs is locked up in the garden of Father's heart and it continuously flows into us. Love that keeps no record of wrongs. Isn't that beautiful? That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Grace and magnified mercy, even when we are less than gracious and less than merciful to others, that doesn't dam up somehow the Father's grace and the Father's mercy to us. It continuously pours out and showers us with the treasures locked in His heart. Out of the garden of the Father's heart flows Christ, flows Jesus my Savior, Full of grace and truth, full of eternal life, full of living color, full of breath and power and animation out of the garden of the father's heart. You know what we receive? We receive unbroken devotion, unbroken devotion. Valerie could tell I was not happy with her many, many years ago. It's always something little and stupid, isn't it, really? Unhappy. How can you be unhappy with Valerie, right? She could tell I was unhappy with her, and I was just being silent. That's worse than a bunch of words, friends, when a woman, I'm telling you, I was being really quiet. And after about 10 minutes of that, she said, okay, now I'm mad at you, too. And I said, you can't be mad at me. I haven't done anything. Unbroken devotion, friends, with God. There are times when believers get mad at God. They're disappointed with God. Things didn't turn out exactly like I wanted it to, God. You didn't do this exactly right. The timing was a little bit off. God doesn't say, well, that's the way you feel about it? I'm mad at you too. I'm mad at you for thinking those kind of thoughts about me. In the Father, in the garden of His heart, we find unbroken devotion, even when we are intermittently devoted. This is how good God is. He's pure, beautiful, and good. There is no evil. There is no bad in Him. We possess oneness, friends. A oneness that holds on to us even when we feel like we're disconnected. Come on. When you feel like there's maybe two of you holding on. No, it's oneness. Christ is doing all the holding on. He's holding on to you. We have oneness Even in the midst of times when we feel so far away, we feel like, you're over there, Jesus. I'm over here. No, oneness with Christ. Even when we feel disconnected from the garden of the Father's heart, flows and grows everything that we need in life for godliness. Out of that rich soil, we feast on His intrinsic beauties and glories and qualities and virtues and moral excellences, amen? Nevertheless, Adam was placed in the beautiful Garden of Eden. I would love to see what that looked like. Adam is oxygenating at 100%. I know what it means to oxygenate at 70 some percent and 80 some percent, gasping for breath. Adam doesn't have that problem. He's oxygenating at 100%. There's no pollution. Adam is experiencing fragrances that never fade. Fragrances that never diminish. Isn't that awesome? You see, because you can be around a fragrance. Maybe it's a bouquet of flowers. And when you first get it, you can smell them all the way across the room. But then eventually, if you want to smell, you got to go put your nose and bury it in one of the roses. Am I right? You do. But Adam is experiencing fragrances in the garden that never lose their quality, that just keep emanating the glory of God, the beauty of God, the qualities of God. What a place. Adam is seeing colors that your inkjet printer can't print, friends. Oh, man, what a cornucopia of colors. I know we got an awful lot of colors, but believe me, I believe in the garden there were colors That we haven't come up with yet. Adam is seeing colors that are so real that it looks like he can step into these things. So beautiful in this garden. Adam is enjoying temperatures that feel like they're climate controlled. Friends, Adam is feasting on organic food that is teeming with life, teeming with nutrition, and succulent to his taste buds. Will this paradise ever end for Adam? Will something come along and upset the apple cart? Yes. Why? Because although love encourages and love nurtures and love protects, true love will never demand devotion. I need to just pause and let you think about that for a moment. True love never, never demands you love me. It gives you the option. Adam had the option to obey God. Adam had the option to walk with God. Adam had the option to talk with God. And Adam had an option when God took him on a stroll one day and he said, Adam, do you see these two trees? One's the tree of life. And he said, that one right there, that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, Adam, that tree... Is off limits. He said, the day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. You say, Pastor Mark, man, why did God do that? If he had just done it a better way, we wouldn't have all the chaos that's going on right now. Now, let me ask you a question. Don't you think if God had a better way to do it, he'd have done it? See that's us. We don't have anything to really compare it to. So we reach out in there and think, this is the way I would do it. Well, your way would have been broken, friends. Your way wouldn't have worked. It had to be this way. Christ had to go to the cross to redeem man. There was no other way. God would have found a way, friends, if an angel could have went and been sacrificed on the cross. God would have given an angel If God could have just hung Lucifer on a cross or an old tree or something like that and said, let's just get him out of the way, he would have done it, friends. But he couldn't have, it required the blood of his precious son to redeem man. Man was under the curse after Adam ate from that tree. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, we find these words. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from the tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. He didn't say for if you eat of it. He said when. God already knew. He already knew it was coming. God is not taken by surprises, friends. He knows. He can look down timelines. When I gave my heart to Jesus and when he gave his heart to me, he already looked down my timeline. He said, Mark, I see every mistake that you'll make, but love keeps no record of wrongs. I see every wrongheaded thought you'll think, but love keeps no records of wrongs. You are going to grow in my father's heart and you're going to blossom there. Friends, that is the inheritance we have. It's not just somewhere out there in the future. We have an inheritance that we are tapping into right now. And so love is not held together by these mandatory rules. It was a commandment, actually, that God put Adam under. He said, thou shalt not eat from that tree. So there's a commandment for the day thou thou does, thou shalt surely die. So love is not held together by mandatory rules, but rather by our ability to choose. And we choose Christ. In Genesis chapter three, we see the narrative of Adam. You know, when I, so many times I've read the Bible and, and uh, when I see God's creation of Adam, he plants Adam in the garden. I think, how many days went by? Because now we just turned the page on chapter three and Adam's about to fall. Was it just one day? I don't think it was a long time. Had it been a long time, surely he would have found his way to the tree of life first. And so I don't know if Adam failed on the first day or 10 days from that time that God put him in the garden, but this is the account right here. Now there's a serpent in the garden. How many of you know that? It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Of course, God didn't say that. The serpent said, you will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he began to lay out a little list of things. These are the benefits from eating from the tree. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man. He said, where are you? What an interesting thing to say. Where are you? Let me ask you a question. Do you think God has misplaced Adam? <laughs> no. The scriptures say, can any man hide so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. No, God hasn't misplaced Adam. So why would you ask, where are you? That would be like my wife sitting on the front row and me going, hey, honey, where are you? She would know immediately that I'm talking about in the mind. I'm not talking about you physically. And this is where God is calling Adam perhaps into accountability, where are you, Adam? That is an icebreaker to just say, we need to talk about this, Adam. We need to have a discussion. I'm aware of what you've done. So God says to him, where are you? And Adam said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. This breaks my heart when I read this because we should never be afraid of the Father. We should never be afraid of the Holy Spirit. Never afraid of Jesus. Adam said, I'm afraid. I've never been afraid of you. I've always enjoyed our walks and our talks. I've always enjoyed your presence. But suddenly, I'm afraid because I was naked. I was exposed, in other words. So I hid and he said to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman! Man, he didn't waste any time with those words, did he? The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it you have done? The woman said, The serpent! (laughs) Nobody wants to take responsibility here. Everybody wants to continue to pass the buck. I heard it said before, he didn't look at the snake and said, what have you done? Because he didn't have a leg to stand on. Amen. (laughs) The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, not what have you done, but because you're the one behind all of this, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, prophesying about Jesus Christ who would come and crush his head on Mount Calvary. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to your children. In other words, what he's saying, I'm just going to remove what would have always been there had I not just had my hand upon you in a perfect garden in a perfect world. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil. You will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. In other words, he's saying, Adam, you just injected death into humanity until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to the dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, let me ask you something. Does this really sound like an angry father? It doesn't really to me. It sounds like a considerate father, a father that's going to take time to make clothes. He wasn't like genie in the bottle and just twinkled his nose and had him float across the garden. No, he took time to make clothes, make skins, make garments for Adam. That means an animal had to lose its life, friends. That means there had to be a sacrifice. You see how it says there? Garments of skin. This is not cotton. This is not rayon. This is not polyester. An animal had to lose its life. So it's not an angry father. It's a father that's considerate. It's a father that's loving. It's a father that's protecting Adam and Eve. Continuing in the scriptures, that narrative, it says, and the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. I don't know as I can give you any new revelation here, I think it speaks for itself, that God says in the state that he's entered into, which is the fallen state, he cannot stay in the garden because he's eventually going to eat from that tree, that tree of life, and he is going to continue to live in that state of being forever and no way out of it. Do you see why God moved them out of the garden now? He must not be able to eat from the tree of life and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Did you notice how it says that? Not just guard the way of the entrance into the garden, Not just guard the way to be able to sneak back into your home. No, he's guarding the way of being able to come back to the tree of life. It's going to take some time. There are going to be some other events that are going to have to take place before you can go back to the tree of life and Jesus would eventually become that tree of life manifest in manly form. So Adam lost everything, listen to me carefully, through a single act of disobedience. He lost his innocence, he lost his dominion, and he lost his home in the garden. And so when many believers read these scriptures, you know what happens? They become terrified. They become afraid because they read these verses and they go, man, I commit acts of sin daily or every few days or so. And the person who says they have no sin and don't commit sins, well, I think that's just pride all by itself, because we do, but our sins are not counted against us. Why? Because Christ has taken them away. He nailed them to the cross. So when they read these scriptures, they think things like, how can there be any hope for me if Adam lost everything through a single act of disobedience? They ask that inwardly. How many of you know that the garden of the father's heart was not flowing with punishment as he banished Adam from the garden? The garden of the father's heart was flowing with provision. It was flowing with protection. If God's heart would have been punishment, then those cherubim would have used the swords on Adam and Eve. If God said, wipe them out, then those cherubim would have not come to just guard the way back to the tree of life with a flaming sword going back and forth. No friends, that sword would have cut Adam and Eve down like a lawnmower on grass. Adam was under a different covenant than us. Adam was given one command and failed. Think about that one time. Just one command. There's so many believers that would say, I would love to have a relationship with God that I just have one command. For example, if I had one command that said, you can never paint this room. Guess what? There'd come a day I'd paint this room. You put me under the command one time. I'm telling you, I would paint this room someday. So Adam's under this one command and he fails. Moses would come along many, many hundreds and thousands of years later, and he would be given 613 laws. And guess what? Everyone fails. Do you see how it went from one to six hundred and thirteen? But friends, we don't have six hundred and thirteen laws to live by. In fact, we don't even have that one law like Adam did. You know what we have? We have oneness with Christ. That's what we live by. We live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us, oneness with Christ. And as I was thinking about this story, I thought, I'm gonna have to check this just to make sure. And I did. I went into my Bible, and I began to look, and I thought, I find it odd that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, as you read their books, they never mention Adam's failure. Out of all those chapters, all those words, they never talk about Adam's failure, but the Apostle Paul would come along and talk about it. He would come along and make mention of it, not because he wanted to throw the first Adam under the tree, but because he wanted to show the world why the last Adam was nailed to the tree. That's why he would mention this. He wanted to roll out grace, so he had to go back to the beginning of time, way back, 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 and said, this man failed at a tree, the first Adam. And this man here, Christ, your hope of glory, would win victoriously at a tree. Maybe it's just because I believe the Holy Spirit was moving differently upon the Apostle Paul than he was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They still had so much Old Covenant mentality in them. They didn't have the revelation that Paul had. And in Romans chapter 5, verses 12-17, through 17, we find these beautiful words. This is Paul now, right? Therefore, Just as sin entered the world through one man. Who's that man? Adam. And death through sin. That's what it produced. Death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people. Systemic. You see that? Because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. In other words, Adam was not under the Mosaic law. But that doesn't mean sin wasn't in the world. He said, to be sure... Sin was in the world before the law was given. I treasure these next words. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Isn't that powerful? Sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. So park a ribbon in your mind just for a second. Sin is not charged Against anyone's account where there is no law. Look at the next verse, Romans chapter 6, verse 14. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. What did I say before that? Sin is not charged to anyone's account where there is no law. And then this verse says, You are not under the law but under grace. So beautiful. Again, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through the one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged. It's not credited. It is not registered, if you will, to anyone's account. If it were possible to pull a sin account on me right now, it would be totally blank. Why? Sin is not counted to anyone's account who's not under the law, and you are not under the law, but under grace. There's nothing there. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Next scriptures. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam. You know what he did? He just revealed who that one man was that he opened verse 15 with when he said death reigned through the one man. Now he tells you who that one man is. He said, it's Adam. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. The one command, the 613 commands. Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come. Next scriptures. I love this. But the gift is not like the trespass. It doesn't work exactly the same way, friends. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, that's Adam. How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, the last Adam, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification next scriptures for if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man that's adam how much more will those who receive god's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man jesus christ provision of grace and the gift of righteousness, friends. This is our inheritance, and it's already been deposited on the inside of us. Can I just be candid with you for just a second? Can I just be honest with you for a second? I don't love another human being on the planet enough to sacrifice my wife for them. I love a lot of people. But I do love people enough to sacrifice my life for them. Men, if you'll be honest with me, you'll say the same thing. If I had to make a decision between my wife and someone else, I'd just say, let's pray. (laughs) Let's pray. Do you know Jesus? Because you're about to meet him. I hate to be callous like that. It feels that way. But there's no thinking about it. I don't love another human being to say, here, take my wife in place of an old vile sinner. Do you? Even though I know my wife would go straight to glory with him. But I've thought about it over the years and I thought, God, if I knew for a fact that that man who's an unbeliever had no other way to heaven, but then for me to grab a knife and stab it in my beating and bleeding heart, I said I would do that and I would count it an honor to do that for you and do that for him. Do you understand sacrifice? Sacrifice. Do you understand what it means to give your life for someone? Love has to be involved, friends. Honor has to be involved. Commitment has to be involved. Faithfulness has to be involved. That's a bold statement, isn't it? It's a God statement. It's a cross statement. Yet the Father loved us enough to give us his son, Jesus Christ, to become the propitiation and sacrifice for the vilest of sinners and criminals? Can you comprehend such love? Can you fathom such grace and magnified mercy? Are you able to coherently put into words the fragrances that are found in the decision-making garden of the Father's heart? I'm talking about fragrances that don't fade like cheap perfume, but rather pervade and persuade the most challenged hearts through an overdose of exquisite virtues that flow from the garden of daddy's heart. In the 26th chapter of Matthew, we see the events that preceded Jesus's crucifixion. I mean, these are the events leading up to his crucifixion. It's just right around the corner. And the 26th chapter of Matthew is just stuffed full of things because Jesus is winding up his earthly life and ministry. He's about to be crucified. And so there's a lot of activity going on toward the end of his life. He is anointed at Bethany. He is betrayed by Judas. He institutes the Lord's Supper. His sweat becomes like drops of blood as he prays in the garden of Gethsemane. He is arrested and taken before the Sanhedrin. And then finally, in that same 26th chapter, he is disowned by Peter. Are you kidding me? What I just went through in the hospital recently cannot compare that. We're talking about broken heart. That's why in the garden of Gethsemane, the place they call the olive press, he would pour out his heart to the Father and say, Daddy, if there's another way, let's do it another way, Daddy. But if there's not, it's okay, Daddy. I'm still willing to go to the cross for them. Lots of activity in his life, yet the garden of the Father's heart kept percolating grace and magnified mercy even unto them that spit in his son's face and struck him with their fists. The scriptures tell us that others slapped him and said, prophesy unto us, who hit you? In all of Jesus's physical and emotional suffering, the fragrance of love is unmistakable as it rises like the aroma of very, very costly perfume. In Matthew 26, we see the anointing of Jesus hours before his crucifixion. Matthew 26, verses 6 to 13. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now I want you to look at those next words when the disciples saw this. Very important. You'll see why. When the disciples saw what she did, they were indignant. Kind of a church word. You don't hear it hardly anywhere else. They were indignant. Are you mad about something? No, I'm just indignant about this. And they said, why this waste? Why did you allow her to waste this expensive perfume? This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? You're not bothering me because I get you guys, okay? I've been hanging around with you for three years. I get how you think. I get the things you say. Why are you bothering this woman? Why are you trying to bring in condemnation for what she's done? And friends, sometimes that will happen. You'll do the sweetest, most beautiful thing out there and someone will try to find a way to throw you back under the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They'll try to find a way to throw you under the bus, if you will. He says, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burials like she was moved by the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus said, truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel, that's the good news, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Wow! Remember I told you to note that it was Jesus's own religious disciples that were vexed and tormented and annoyed with this woman giving him this expensive perfume pouring it over his head. You see, they perceived that this woman's expensive and fragrant gift of perfume was wasted by pouring it on Jesus. In fact, her gift was so extravagant that Judas lost his mind right on the spot. The scriptures tell us both in Matthew and Mark that Judas immediately went out to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand them over to you? He just lost his doggy brain. He lost his little mind. He just couldn't stand it. So they counted out 30 silver coins That's the same price that you would buy a slave for. They counted out 30 silver coins, the cost of a slave. What's the point of that narrative? I don't know what they all are. But the first thing I see is devotion, devoted to Christ. What did she see? Who knows? But the first thing I see is devotion. She's not committed to the perfume. She's committed to Christ. She's committed. She's devoted. You see love. That costly perfume would have been years of wages. And just to pour it out on somebody, love would only do something like that. You see devotion. You see love. And you see extravagance. Intrinsic beauties. Remember that? And glories and excellences flowing from the alabaster box. Jesus wanted the disciples to smell the fragrances, not only from the perfume, but from the garden of the Father's heart. Leave her alone. This is beautiful. She has anointed my body for burial. And from this point Forward, Wherever someone preaches the true gospel, they'll bring this story out of the book and they'll show you what true devotion and love and extravagance looks like. He wanted them to see that this is how my father will treat you. Devotion, love, grace, and extravagance. Jesus was working with disciples that were constantly troubled, always troubled. And that's why Jesus would come along in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 10, and he would say these words, and this is where this series has been built upon, show us the Father. Jesus would say, do not let your hearts be troubled. Always dealing with troubled disciples, whether they're on a boat, whether they've got 5,000 people to feed, whether they're in the home of Simon the leper, and this woman comes and breaks the alabaster box and anoints Jesus with perfume. They're always troubled, afraid. And he said to his disciples, you believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms, many mansions, many dwelling places. If that were not so, would I have told you, that I'm going to prepare a place for you. In other words, he said, There would have been no point for me telling you that if it wasn't true. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, (laughs) we don't know uh, the place. We don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, and he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except through me. I love how Jesus always takes something so misguided and then he turns it around to magnify his Father and to recenter thinking. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my father's well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father. And that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me, doing the work. Last week, I was coming around a corner at work. We've all done this before. You're coming around a corner, someone's coming around the same corner, and you meet in the middle, right? And there was a guy coming around the corner the same time I was. And it startled him, to be honest. It didn't bother me a bit, but it startled him. And the first words out of his mouth were, Oh, Jesus! And I said, Yes. He lives in me. I said, We are one together. How can we help you? Isn't that interesting? See, I was meditating on oneness throughout the week before the sermon got built yesterday. I was meditating where I needed to go with this thing and oneness was on my mind. And when that man said, oh, Jesus, I said, yes. <laughs> he lives on the inside of me. We are one together. How can I help you? And that's what Jesus is getting at through these scriptures in John chapter 14. He's saying, the Father and I are one. So when you say, oh, Jesus, you're saying, oh, daddy. When you say, oh, father, you're saying, oh, Jesus. Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. We are one. Jesus was essentially saying, Philip Thomas, let me tell you something, guys. I have been on this earth for 30 plus years away from my heavenly throne and all the beauty up there. And I can guarantee you that my father hasn't changed. How do I know? Because I've been with him from the beginning. I know his heart. I know the garden that grows on the inside of him. I know his nature. I guarantee you, my daddy hasn't changed. Now, the reason that is important to us is because it lets us know that the sin we occasionally commit does not change how the father sees us his plan for our lives he says for i know the plans that i have for you if you'll walk straight and narrow no i know the plans that i have for you declares the lord plans to prosper you and do you no harm plans that bring you a hope and a future regardless that's why it's important for us to be able to see that the father does not change how he feels about us and it does not change his plans for our lives We are always, every moment, every beat of the clock, we are always the righteousness of God in Christ. Why? Because we are one with him. I hope I come across as a broken record, friends. We are one with him. So the next time someone says, oh, Jesus, you can say, yes. How can I help you? That might just open up a wonderful conversation, friends. It just might. In Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, the Apostle Paul continues to talk. Remember how he brought in verse 15, that first Adam, showed us that last Adam, and he says, this is the benefit. He says, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Do you see that in that awesome? There was no way for Adam to get that sin out of his life. There was no way for him to undo what he did. And when we come to Christ, there's no way to get Christ out of our lives. There's no way to undo what he has done inside of us. It's so beautiful. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, look at these words, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Awesome my closing thoughts. In the book of Solomon, we discover a relationship, I believe that was made in heaven, between Solomon and his beloved. Song of Solomon, just so you know, is an allegory. It's an allegory of what it looks like for Christ and his bride, Christ and the entire church. And it's such a beautiful story. In Song of Solomon, chapter four, verse seven, then verses 10 through 12, and then finally verses 15 through 16, you'll find my closing scriptures. Now remember, when the lover, that's the man, is talking to the beloved, that's the girl, that's like Christ talking to his bride. And here's what he says, you are altogether lovely, my darling, there is no flaw in you. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride, the bride of Christ. Do you see this? How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. He says, your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Look what he says. You are a garden locked up. My sister, my bride, you are a spring enclosed and a sealed fountain. Do you see how he's speaking of a finished work? He says, you're locked up. You're enclosed. You're sealed. I got you, baby. It's all about me. I gotcha." You. you are a garden fountain. Isn't that just... Wonderful imagery, you are a garden fountain. I love fountains, I love to watch them, especially if they got colors lighting them up and they can be just so beautiful. He says, you are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Awake, north wind, and come south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Oh, And those words just began to tickle my heart when I heard that last night. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Friends, that's what Jesus was getting at when he was anointed with oil by the woman in Bethany. He was saying her love and devotion and extravagance will blow across my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. And that's what we do through this ministry here. That's what we do through the ministry of the gospel of grace. We are blowing across the garden of the Father's heart that the fragrance of daddy's love might spread everywhere. That all would come to know that he has made us not only the righteousness of God in Christ, not only the holiness of God in Christ, not only the wisdom of God in Christ, not only the sanctification and redemption in Christ, but that He has made us altogether lovely. He has made us altogether flawless. That we all would see that we are His garden locked up, a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Now I want you to see verse 16. This is how she responds to him. She says, let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruit. Friends, this is an invitation for all, for all to come to his garden. In the garden, guess what? We eat from the tree of life and we live forever. That tree of life is Christ and he's in the same place as he was when God made Adam. Jesus is in the center of the garden. He is our tree of life. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. We are so much more than a fly in daddy's soup. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. We are hidden with Christ in God. We are one with God through Christ. How did we come righteous, you ask? Well, it wasn't through our own means. You and I were like Adam, lifeless, colorless, breathless, powerless, Inanimate and unable to help ourselves, friends, believers are made the righteousness of God in Christ by trusting in Jesus's finished work and by his one, one act of righteousness. The scriptures tell us in Romans 5 through his one act of righteousness, do you know what he did? He released something. It's not just perfume, but it smells like it. It's called justification that brings life. The scriptures say for all men, the justification that comes by grace through faith, by trusting in Christ as your savior. We are not two spirits, but one. There are no prenuptial agreements or divorces in Christ. We were married with Christ in the garden. Once we are planted in the garden of the Father's heart, we remain. There's no way for us to be removed, expunged, wiped out, removed, deleted from that garden. He is the vine and we are the branches. He is the gardener who takes care of his tender shoots. In his garden, there is no contamination and there is no condemnation in the garden of the father's heart we find the true treasures of life in the garden of the father's heart we find the fields of oneness and faithful love we discover an inner well of living water flowing water a well a a deep deep well in the garden of the father's heart we find grace and magnified mercy In the garden of the Father's heart, we hear him whisper, You are all together lovely. My darling, there is no flaw in you. How much more pleasing is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. So let me ask you a question. What was the Shulamite woman's response to such praises from her lover? And what is your response to such honor and such love from Jesus? She said, Awake, north wind and south wind. Come, blow on my garden for the first time I've got the revelation I'm flawless so as the winds come and they take the pollen and they lift it to go to other fields for the first time in my life I see that I'm perfect in Christ and I'm flawless in him now come north wind come south wind pollinate this whole world with your goodness and grace blow on my garden she says that it's fragrance might spread everywhere. I want the whole world to know about your loving kindness. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. Friends, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Jesus is more than just our way to heaven. He is our way into the garden of the Father's heart. And Jesus said, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you won't have to say, show us the Father, for you do know him and have seen him. Friends, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus He is our tree of life, and he lives in the center of the garden of the Father's heart. In Jesus' name. Father, I want to thank you so much. I want to thank you so much that through this word, I believe that you brought yourself up so close and personal that people might be able to see that there's no flaw in us, Daddy. Even in our behavior, our behavior is a work. It's not counted against us. The scriptures told us that where there is no law, there's no record of sin. And so, Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for the finished work of Christ. I want to thank you for this allegory from the Song of Solomon, that we can see that it is Christ who's always been pursuing the bride. And the bride gets the revelation that she's flawless. The bride gets the revelation that you will come and blow across her garden because she's perfect, that she hasn't done anything to win your love. I thank you, Father. I thank you, Father, that she can have such hope that the whole world will hear this message, the message of your amazing virtues, the message, Daddy, of your qualities, the message of your intrinsic beauties and moral excellences, and all of them flow and grow in the garden of the Father's heart. In Jesus' name, amen.